I guess part of the reason that I want to put, include pronouns in our intros is just because in general, like at least for me, as someone who doesn't necessarily identify as a gamer, but I love games, um, I find that the industry and the media surrounding the industry is almost impenetrable for me. Uh, I have to mm-hmm. turn to people like you to translate gaming news to me in a way that doesn't make me feel actively oppressed. Wow. That puts a lot on my shoulders. <laughs> good thing I read so much video game news. <laughs> yeah. You're I just like a giant RSS feed, just taking it all in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll be our RSS feed. video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player where what you play is just as important as how you play it and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat every three weeks we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss one of the games that made them and changed them and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime i'm your co-host jamie pronouns she her and i'm your co-host spencer pronouns they them and this is pixel therapy so pull up an armchair feel free to lie down on the couch and let's talk about our feelings Spencer, what's your plan? That's a good question. Um, so, well, well, I okay, I I know what you're playing because it's also what I'm I playing. I know you're playing. We're playing the same we're game. Playing, <laughs> we're playing a game called Ghost of Tsushima. Yes, we are. Okay, yes, so are. so before we get into it, there's something I want to say. <laughs> are we not into it yet? Say. We're not into it yet. Okay, so please we haven't even gotten started. Not even um, started. So I've noticed uh, the NPCs in Tsushima. Some of them pronounce it Tsushima and some of them pronounce it Tsushima. Yeah. And, and I've even heard like more of a Tsushima. Tsushima. Yes. That yes. too. And I'm like, so I am playing it in with the English dub um, Same. because it's very well done. And I, and I wanted to be able to um, enjoy the game that way. Um, I may in my second playthrough um, play it in Japanese because I want to be able to experience um, both of those tracks. Yeah. But I don't know if that, like, I'm curious to know if that's also a thing in the Japanese version or if there is weirdness going on with the voice acting situation for this game. Um, Because I've I've read a a lot of conflicting things. Yeah. Um, Like some folks saying uh, that the voice acting is racist. And I want to talk about that too. Um, But first, before I get to that, I wanted to see if you had anything to say about, about that. (laughs) <laughs> about the voice acting? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess one of the, the main things that I've heard that I think, I don't know, that this game, oof, if we're going to start talking about, like, what feels weird or possibly, and, like, I'll just caveat this by saying, like, I'm enjoying the fuck out of the game. Yes. Like, I'm enjoying the game a lot. Uh, but, I love you, Jin. Yes. I love Jin. I love Yuna. Yeah. Uh, with my whole heart. Uh, and we're not done with the game. So if something bad happens to you, know, like, don't, don't tell us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we don't want to know. <laughs> we don't want to know. Um, but like, I, it, I'm just so conflicted by the fact that this has come out from a Western studio, mm-hmm. I guess, or, and maybe conflicted is not the right word, but it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Uh, and like what that means mm-hmm. and like, is that appropriation? Mm. Is that cultural yeah. appropriation for a Western studio to be profiting off yeah. of something like this? You know, where's that line between like respect um, and like wanting to represent this culture and acknowledge this culture? Um, and, and I know there's like a whole debate around like, well, the samurai lords were, uh, you know, terrible mm-hmm. and a lot of people suffered under them. I, to me though, I equate that to the way knights and kings are portrayed in popular media and they also did a lot of bad shit. And it feels, you know, when you're talking about these feudal periods mm-hmm. of time, there was a lot of bad shit happening. I think we can parse those stories out and like acknowledge that there, there was bad shit. And also there's like a, an enjoyment in telling these stories and kind of hold both of those things. Um, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that's I, I haven't done enough research on this stuff with the the voice acting mm-hmm. to be able to pick that apart. I do know that like 
when I initially saw that it was a pretty diverse cast that they were actually trying to cast people from uh, East Asian descent. I thought that was pretty cool and not something you see very often even yeah. for an English voice track. Um, but yeah, like how many of those folks are actually uh, descendants from J- Japan? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and also like the game is clearly built to be played in English. Right. Uh, when you turn on the Japanese track, the right. lip syncing goes away. Yes, I like, which seems like for a game that's kind of like, that's another thing that's uncomfortable. The game has like sold itself on this premise that it's really authentically Japanese and Japanese culture and Japanese history. Mm-hmm. And yet, like, if you want to actually play with the Japanese language, you're not going to have it lip synced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's There's a ton in there. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was, uh, as you were talking, I was just looking up the cast, voice cast for the game, and um, like there are different folks playing. Like, for example, Jin um, is portrayed by a different person. Um, Daisuke Suji uh, plays the English version of Jin, and then the Japanese portrayal um, is played by uh, Kayuza Nakai. And so I think it's interesting, um, like. I guess to give context to where I'm coming from, like I've seen a lot of tweets about how um, the English portrayal of Japanese voices is racist. It's almost as if they are, um, you know, emphasizing the accent of yeah. a Japanese persons speaking English. Um, and it's it. I guess it's interesting for me to see um, like white folks and um, like American raised. Um, Asian folks like saying that um, just because like who's to say that there is one correct way, one correct voice, one correct inflection in which to speak English and all other are racist. Like for me, you know, my grandparents um, spoke English as a second language and they had very, they have very heavy accents. Um, My Mm -hmm. grandfather in particular had a very thick accent and it's almost comforting for me to hear, um, you know, voices speaking English with other accents, because that was my reality. That was what surrounded me. So I don't know that I agree that it's inherently racist um, just to hear an accent of voice. If anything, like, how often do you hear those voices centered? Like, those mm-hmm. voices are just as valid as a voice that speaks English, um, yeah. like, like you and I are speaking it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I have a lot of complex feelings about the about a, a lot of the response that I've been seeing online calling the game racist. Um, I do think there's a lot to what you're saying too about um, like the context and, and who's allowed to tell these stories um, and what's a, what's the line between respect and appropriation. It reminds me of, um, so you and I are in Boston um, and a couple of years ago, the museum- a city of- with no problematic history <laughs> oh, yes. at all. Just, right. It's- <laughs> We're only- only one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. Um, yeah, lots, lots uh, to talk about here when it comes to that. Um, but uh, so the Museum of Fine Arts Boston had an exhibit a few years ago um, where they had uh, a kimono on display mm-hmm. and they had this thing it was called like kimono mondays where they invited the public to come in and try on the kimono um and it was interesting because for a lot of folks asian americans in the u.s uh understandably there was immediate backlash like um it was the very definition of appropriation um like overwhelmingly white folks because the museum of fine arts is also known for historically um you know being a place that is not exactly um, super welcoming um, or accessible um, for people who are are not white. Um, they've had their own uh, issues with uh, with racism and against guests and things like that. Um, but uh, that's just one example. But um, understandably, you know, having all these white folks putting on this regalia just to take pictures and post on Instagram, like, what are they taking away from that? Um, at the same time, um, folks. Uh, Japanese folks who were in Japan or who were raised in Japan um, felt very differently. They were saying, you know, um, this is just a way, another way of um, showing appreciation for the culture. Um, It's art. It's meant to be shared. Um, We don't see anything wrong with this. And I think that there's something to be said for sure about the differences in experience for 
um, Asian American folks in an American context where um, being Asian and the subjugation of Asian people and uh, stereotypes and Orientalism um, and those damaging uh, behaviors because of that are very much a thing that colors the Asian American experience specifically. Um, but for folks who are raised in a place where, you know, they're the majority um, and that kind of experience of otherness is not really a thing, um, I can totally understand why um, they would not see it the same way. It's a really nuanced conversation, I think, um, and I definitely want to continue um, reading um, about folks' reactions and experiences with the game as I continue playing it. Um, I'm just I'm about 10 hours in right now. Um, and I think I want to learn more about the about the studio, too, because I don't know a ton about the developer. Can you tell, do you know a lot about um, Sucker Punch? <laughs> um, I know that they, uh, so their claim to fame uh, in recent history is the infamous games. Oh. And that's the one where you're like a psychic, you have psychic powers. You're, uh, so it's different in the different games. So Infamous 1 and 2, you actually have electric powers. But yeah, the idea is it's a normal person who gets who gets superhero powers. Um, so it's kind of like a superhero game, but it's, instead of being comic book based, it's, they, they made their own, their own narrative. Uh, and the most recent one, Second Son, uh, yeah, you have, is it like, I think it is like, it's, you can move things with your mind. Yeah. Yeah, I know that because I think you lent it to me and I never gave it back to you. Oh, really? Yeah, that's actually <laughs> true. Yeah, I think that's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this would be a good point then to transition into talking about what our history is with video games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, should I start? You can if you want to. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess my earliest memories uh, with video games are like being five years old and playing um, Soul Calibur on the Dreamcast, the Sega wow. Dreamcast. Um, I I definitely like my introduction to games um, was through my stepdad, um, who, um, you know, for a long time I thought. I associated video games as being this very masculine, very mm-hmm. bro e, very uh, like something that boys did because all mm-hmm. the games that I saw him play were like hockey, ice hockey, NHL, and, and basketball, yeah. NBA games. There was the fighting games like Soul Calibur, and then there were the shooting games that um, I never, I never really have understood the appeal of first-person shooters, if I'm being completely honest, like, unless you're someone who is already, like, predisposed to violence, I guess. Like, not to not to make a snap judgment, but yeah. I always, I guess maybe as someone who lives with a, with generalized anxiety disorder, <laughs> I, and PTSD, I find them very stressful. Um, and, uh, like, I think that I identify very early on with the, with the empathy of sort of like shooting someone and watching them die right in front of you. Like I could never mm-hmm. really just get into that. If it was aliens, yeah. like halo. Okay. Like if, it, but when it's people, um, I just, I don't like it as much. So I watched him play yeah. a lot of call of duty, a lot of, um, like half life, um, just like games that were kind of bloody and shooty. Um, and it wasn't until I got to college, uh, then I, and I discovered Skyrim, um, that I was like, oh, there's a whole other sort of world of, like, I really enjoyed this sort of open world, exploratory, um, sort of protagonist-led, like, I really enjoy um, sort of identifying with the protagonist and learning something about myself in the process. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I always played, I played, like, Pokemon and and Zelda and, and, mm-hmm. and Super Mario Brothers and go-kart racing and and those kinds of games I associate with growing up with my cousins. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think as an adult, I've really found solace in games and I've found um, like a way to learn things about myself. Um, I think as someone who used to work in theater, um, I think with theater, it's such an experiential experience. Like you can't really recreate the experience that you have in a room 
um, with a performance, like it's, it's very visceral and it's very immediate and it's very emotional. Um, and I think that, uh, video games don't get enough credit for really immersing you into that same sort of, like that first time that you play through a game, you can't go back and recreate that again. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm always chasing that feeling. And I think when I play titles like Horizon Zero Dawn, The Last of Us, um, even like I'm starting to play the older Uncharted, Uncharted games um, mm-hmm. and just seeing the ways that music and art and character development and writing all come together to create an experience that um, is really putting you so completely in the shoes of another person. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that anyone can benefit from and should. Yeah. I think there's, there, well, I guess this is when I'm supposed to talk about my video game history, but I want to just like pick yeah. a few things you said there. Uh, one of the things that I hear talked about with video games, like there's this argument there or not argument, but there's this position that uh, video games are empathy machines. Right. And I think that's definitely one thing that you can get out of a video game. But I've also heard the counter to that being that video games are actually the opposite of empathy machines because they build a world that you can then go in and enforce your will upon Mm. in every place. And I think that just like speaks so clearly to what people look for in games, right? Like like the way I'm playing Ghost right now, for example, uh, I'm playing Ghost to role play Mm -hmm. as Jin as a samurai. Mm-hmm. Every time I go into a fight and I'm done with the fight, I clean the blood off of my blade before I put it away. <laughs> the game gives you that choice. Like you can hit a button every time to do that. I did not know that. Oh, That's yeah. Swipe awesome. right on the D-pad. Okay. He'll, he'll either wipe it upon, in on his, on his arm or he'll flick the blood off oh. before he puts it away. Now, if wow. you don't hit that, he'll automatically put the sword anyway when you move, but it's giving you this choice, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's, there's like games really are about what you bring into them. And so if you're looking for that type of an experience, you can absolutely get it. And if you're not, then it can be just, and I think that's, that's some of what I, I kind of agree with you on the first person shooter thing. Like I've never been super drawn to first person shooters when I've gotten into first person shooters. It's uh, it is like call of duty and stuff, but it's the multiplayer aspect. Mm. And I do think it's, it's kind of a different game when you're talking about multiplayer first person shooters, mm. because there becomes a different thing that you're getting out of it Mm. uh it can be the competition it can be the camaraderie of playing in a team Mm. um but it's it's something entirely different than playing a single player first person shooter game which i've always struggled to get into yeah uh and and stick with when i'm playing them yeah um but yeah my my history with games uh you know i didn't start too dissimilar from you uh my dad is who introduced me to video games we had a second genesis when I was a nice. kid, and it was a lot of sports games, uh, a lot of football and baseball. And for a long time, I kind of thought that's that's what it was. Um, that's what video games were. And I think when I was in high school, uh, I got introduced to two different games that I think really made a, a big difference. The, the first of those was God of War, which mm. I know has been, you know, God of War, the early God of War is very violent, very violent games. Um, but there was something that I got into there about mastering like the craft of playing God of War and cranking the difficulty up and wanting to be like really good at murdering things. Yeah. It was enticing to me. And the other game that really shifted how I thought about video games was Shadow of the Colossus, which, mm. uh, you know, when you played that back in uh, whatever year it was that it came out, but on like the PS2, that original game, there were not games like that. It was haunting and lonely yeah and sad um and very like it felt very deep uh when i was playing it and there was a moment near the end of the game which uh spoilers for shadow of the colossus i guess uh (laughs) if you haven't gotten around to playing this game i don't know fast forward 15 seconds yeah fast forward 15 seconds it's not a huge spoiler i'm not going to spoil the real ending of the game but i'll spoil what was a super emotional moment for me which is that you know you're riding up to uh this area where i believe you're going to fight like the last colossus in the game and you are like going across this bridge and the bridge crumbles and your horse who has been literally your <gasps> only companion no! in the entire game falls. And, and, and here's another, the horse doesn't die. The horse comes back what? at the end of the game, but you think it's dead yeah. in that moment. 
And I had to just pause the game. And I'd never had like a deeply emotional reaction to a video game ever Mm -hmm. at this point in my life. And the feeling of loss that I felt, Mm. you know, and I went on to finish the game and and I won't spoil the real ending of the game, which is also like super emotional and and interesting. But it, it was that experience of like, oh, there's, there's something else here. This isn't just for funsies. This isn't just for fuck off uh, mm-hmm. and screw around. Like there's, there's something real. Like there's a very interesting and impactful way that a story can be told through a game that I don't think you can do through other mediums. And it is that mm-hmm. level of immersion. You take something like The Last of Us, which is such a profound video game experience, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that translates to an HBO show. Because I think when you actually look at the narrative beats of that game, it's not doing anything that movies and books and TV haven't already done mm. you know, 20 times over. Mm. And so we do have really, you know, there's a lot of video game narratives that can feel really profound when you're playing them that I think when you actually pull them out and compare them to stories and other forms of media, they can seem kind of derivative or uh, not as deep, but mm. the depth comes from the investment and the, the engagement. Right, like you're not just seeing a scene where they're walking across the country and then the next scene is them of having arrived. Like you are literally on foot walking across that country, yeah. R.E., the last of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so pretty much onwards from Shadow of the Colossus. I've- oh, wait, pause. There's something I wanted to go back to that you said earlier. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. mentioned, you were saying um, Shadow of the Colossus was the second example you'd given of a game that sort of changed the way you looked at games. And what you had said about God of War was that um, you liked the way you able you were able to get really good at murdering things and on a technical <laughs> level, like really, really yeah. mastering that. Can you say yeah. more about how, how that... Uh, change your outlook on gaming in general or do you just really love murdering things no it's not so much the murdering things it's just about the like before i played god of war i did not think i was i and i still uh you know i think there's another question that we want to get into of like do we consider ourselves gamers like Mm -hmm. capital g gamers Mm -hmm. um and that was not something that i had thought of myself before that point um because i think you know when you when you enter into that conversation of who and what is a gamer it's someone who's who has a skill right? Mm. Like there's skill in playing the game. There's mastery there. Mm. They've spent a lot of time playing games that count or real games, right? Mm. And, and I'd never connected with that. I had, you know, dabbled and played games for fun. And what God of War showed me is that like in certain circumstances, like I do want to re- get really good at the technical mastery. Mm. And, and unfortunately what that means in most games is the technical mastery of killing things. <laughs> um, that's just the reality of how most games work. But uh, I guess it, it, yeah, it just showed me for the first time that there was something in me that also uh, wanted to get good sometimes or like could get into games on that level too. And I can enjoy a game for its story. And a a narrative is nine times out of 10 going to be what keeps me invested in a game and keeps me coming back. But I also enjoy like the mechanics. I also do enjoy getting good at the mechanics. I mean, even take ghost for an example and how much fun that combat is and how amazing it feels to nail a parry and just slice right through someone. And yeah, violence is part of it, but it's, I think, I don't think the violence is like what we revel in. It's the, it's the mastery and feeling like you nail the thing and excelled at a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, that's where the enjoy, like some of that enjoyment comes. What you said about, too about like for example um being able to have the option of cleaning your sword before putting it away um i uh, just speak that reminded me of other criticism that i've been reading about ghost of tsushima which was around Jin being a boring character or a flat Mm, character mm -hmm. um and i think there too like you know we so many of the games we get the the main protagonist is this buff handsome, loud-spoken, brash, obviously coded, like, uh, all-American, like, good old, um, you know, boyish, coy kind of guy. And, like, that's not the only way to be interesting, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, um, that's not the only way to be deep. Um, like we're like, let's get some representation for the introverts out here. Um, (laughs) I find Jin to be a 
deeply resonant character. Like I find that when you pay attention to the little things, like he's actually like a very endearing character. I love the way he talks to his horse. I love the way that he, you know, tells Nobu, I've named my horse Nobu. Yeah. I've got Kage, but yeah. Yeah. But you know, like, uh, um, we're a good team, Nobu, or... One uh, day we'll, we'll ride. Yeah. We'll go on a fun ride or something. Like we'll ride one day. We'll ride. Yeah. Um, and uh, the little cutscenes, I, I very much enjoy um, at the close of each mission, um, how you'll get yeah. a nice little scene with your horse. Um, and the moments of quiet reflection, even in when he's... Like, he's a man who writes haiku. He's a man who enjoys a nice, hot bath. Like, he cares so deeply about um his country and his people and you know i find that i'm every time that i have to heal myself and i hear him grunt his like i really feel for him i feel feel for the guy i feel like i really want to protect him and i want to know like who's who's gonna take care of Jin because he like like so there's something that's just so profound to me about healing yourself just digging deep and finding mm. that resolve the, the whole resolve system yeah, I so honestly really I really love it I, I think that um I I just feel very deeply connected to the idea of knowing that uh you have to look inside to to find the will to push forward I think that there's a lot to relate to um with that character um and so I Jin must be protected I love him. Um, that's that. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> We're playing Ghost of Tsushima. We're, we want to start a video game podcast. We obviously both have a deep love and, and history with video games. But Spencer, are you a gamer? Great question, Jamie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... It's funny, like, I guess I don't know that if I'm allowed to be a gamer, because mm-hmm. I don't know if I, if I have the right credentials. I'm scared someone will revoke, like, my gaming license. Um, mm-hmm. I I think, too, that I associate the word gamer with a lot of, with also assuming, like, the, the gamer fandom or the gamer lexicon uh, or the gamer legacy of sort of, quickly and overwhelmingly extinguishing anything that pushes against uh, what we've accepted as like the status quo or uh, the right way to game. Um, mm-hmm. Like personally, uh, you know, I've, uh, working in tech, like I've worked with folks who come, have come from the gaming industry and just been like women specifically who have been mm-hmm. like after a while, you just can't do it anymore. After a while, you run out of the energy that it takes to just sort of like exist on a team where you're going to be the only one uh, who is not, you know, of a certain background. Um, And so I think it's hard for me to separate like, like knowing that that's what it's like in, in the creation of games. Um, but, I, but I'm also someone who benefits from them and plays them. So I guess I, it's, it's it's privileged of me to not accept the title of gamer. Um, but I guess I think part of the reason that this podcast exists is because there are gamers like us. There are gamers like me. There are a lot of gamers like us. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, the only voices that get prioritized are those that are cis and white and male or at least that's that's what that's what media would have you believe yeah that's certainly what we see in the mainstream it's certainly what we see in uh big budget triple a gaming right i think a lot of times you know and, and you know that is what i think has made the last of us Two stand out so dramatically for even uh for being a triple a game and showcasing anything other then can you define a triple a game for folks who might not be familiar for sure a triple a game is usually a term that's used to talk about games that uh, come from very large studios with very large budgets uh i could go find like where that that budget really is but it's it's a game that's being produced usually by one of a handful 
of uh, of big publisher or being published by one of a handful of big publishers. So we're talking about a game that's being published by Activision, Sony, Microsoft, Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those are probably the four biggest ones. I feel like I'm forgetting one, but I think those are the four big ones, mm-hmm. four big publishers. Uh, and so a game that's being published by them and coming from uh, a big studio that has hundreds and hundreds of employees, possibly multiple studio divisions uh, spread across the globe, uh, and a game that costs millions and millions of dollars to make mm-hmm. and is expected to sell millions and millions of copies. So the mainstream of the mainstream. Gotcha. And sorry, I interrupted you, but you were saying um, so often what you see coming out of these titles is this uh, majority. Majority, white, straight, cyst, maleness, definitely. Although I will say that that women, white women anyway, have been uh, depicted more frequently in AAA games recently. Mm. Uh you know, something like Horizon Zero Dawn, Last of Us 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing that more, still not mm-hmm. to the extent that it should be, but yeah. And still sort of heavily policed in terms of what is acceptable from a female protagonist. Yep. yep. And, and they, they kind of still, like, you know, even Ellie to some extent in a lot of ways, I mean, she's incredibly violent, right? And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean, like, it's so complicated. And it's complicated because we're not seeing the representation enough. Right. So when you have only a handful of, of big female protagonists that you can point to, then it's like, well, is she too, like, should she be less violent because she's a woman? Is it weird to make her more violent? Like, <laughs> are we just taking male characteristics and putting them on a female character and saying, here's your representation? Or mm-hmm. is, is it showcasing the diversity of femininity to have her be more violent? Like, and she can't be all of those things because she's one character in a game. Also, what's a, what's a male characteristic? <laughs> exactly, 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 right. But like, yeah, it, it, these things become more problematic when there's nothing else in the in the nearby space. Exactly, it's just reflecting the very problem of like we o- we literally only have this very limited template of of what a protagonist is. So when you introduce one character that's supposed to represent you know, like Ellie is not supposed to represent every woman. Exactly. She is one character in one game. And as such, she is a human being with flaws yes. um, and problems. And so we need more female or non-men protagonists, period, because it shouldn't just be on her shoulders to represent everybody. We just shouldn't have so few to look to. Um, well, and like then the fact that she's a lesbian, I think even mm-hmm. complicates it more because you look at uh, AAA games that are showcasing a lesbian woman as mm-hmm. their main character, and your list drops down even for. I mean, I don't. I don't think off the top of my head I could name another one. If there is another mm-hmm. one out there, um, for a mainstream. Again, I think. I think when you look at the indie space, there's a lot more going on. But when we start talking about like, you know, it's the difference between blockbuster films and art house, right? Right. Right. Um, so. Do you consider yourself a gamer? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, Spencer. Thank you for asking. <sighs> Man, that's tough. Uh, I think if you pin me down, I would say yes. <laughs> but there's like so much baggage behind that yes. Um, part of it is like not wanting to associate with what has traditionally been considered a gamer. Um, I think there's oh, there's just like so much toxicity tied to the the word gamer, like on one side right? There's just the, that toxic, like white male culture that has said, like, get your politics out of my video game. Mm. Uh, And has fought so hard against women and any other representations being in games that makes it tough to say like, yeah, sign me up for that. Um, And, and also like, there's like, I do still think, I think this is a lot less now, but there's still some part of me that feels like I'm going to be, judged by identifying as a gamer as Mm. someone who like I think gaming has this and and it's gotten less and less but there's still this idea of it being kind of like a lazy hobby Mm. or like Mm. it doesn't it's not on the same level as saying like I read a lot of literature I read a lot of books like what do you do doctor (laughs) (laughs) well okay now we're talking (laughs) even just in terms of like hobbies like 
saying that you read a lot of books or right. you're really into film. Uh, it's just, a, it's, there's a different vibe when you say I'm really into games. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason that I think gets this like social, uh, just like sense of it being uh, more self-indulgent mm-hmm. and participating right. in things like books and film right. and even right. TV shows to some extent, even though all of those things can be just as indulgent. And I like with games, I feel like I'm putting more energy into it than I would yeah. with those other mediums. You're uh, investing. Yeah. And it's certainly a bigger time commitment, but yeah, it's, it's something that like, I think it's, it's like in my head a little bit too. And I need to get over that. No, that's like, real. You still hear that. Like I, I still feel like if I'm, um, if I'm playing a game for more than a couple hours, like I, I always sort of develop this anxiety in the back of my head. Like my mom will burst into the room and be like, have you left your bed today? Like mm. when's the last time you exercise? Like, did yeah. you have any friends to be talking to? Like, why aren't you yeah. playing outside? Um, like, I think there's a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have great relationships with our parents. Can you tell? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's another podcast episode. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, I think it's funny. I was I was trying to look it up. I couldn't find it, but I'll keep looking. But there was this study that I read recently, and it was about how for adults, like, if you get um, one hour up to they identi- they identified this the cutoff point at three hours, which I take issue with. But they say that um, between one and three hours, if you spend that much time playing a video game every day, mm-hmm. your brain benefits from uh, like you'll create neural pathways, you get uh, improved cognition, improved um, reaction times. Um, like for older folks, they associate um, consistent gaming with better memory and um, just better confidence and, and all sorts of positive benefits. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I feel like for me, like three hours, I'm just getting, I'm just getting started. Uh, but they say when you play more than three hours, that's when you can start to feel things like negative side effects of gaming, like depression or worthlessness or feeling mm. lazy or things like that. Um, and so I feel like now we're in this period where, I think too, just because as a society, especially now that we're all in quarantine, people are really starting to turn to games um, and uh, and media um, like that to to you know connect with others or to just have something to do. Um, and as a hobby, I think that people are starting to recognize that um, it shouldn't be overlooked as a hobby or an art form. Mm-hmm. At least that's my hope. Maybe that's my I mean that's my own selfish hope, but. Um, I totally hear you what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so interesting. It, th- there is so much uh, inherent value to video games. It, you know, I think even it, Fortnite is not a game that I play, but it's you know arguably the biggest game in the world right now. And I've heard so many stories about how uh, kids and even adults are using that as like just a social hangout space. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I just think there's so much in the, like what games can offer that gets overlooked when we just talk about uh, them as like this indulgent hobby. No. Yes. What you just said. Oh my God. It's so funny. Like my cousin, I was just texting with my cousin who he was going to into his sophomore year of college. Um, and of course with the pandemic, um, it's kind of posing a challenge in terms of um, getting students to mingle and meet each other. Mm-hmm. And so he was telling me that, um, like orientation this year is taking place inside Minecraft. Oh my um, gosh. Like all of the students are going to be uh, signing up and uh, there's going to be all sorts of like semester kickoff activities happening uh-huh. in Minecraft. Um, and so, yeah, like I just feel like games are going to become the new salons where ideas are exchanged. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, especially, you know, in pandemic times, like it's like, the success of Animal Crossing, I think, you know, a game that would have been popular either way, but but was made so much more popular by the fact that we're living through a pandemic right now. And here's a world where you can actually go visit your friends and hang out at their house and just chat and see the island that they built for themselves and chat with their neighbors. Uh, Just like all things that you can't do right now. Um, So, yeah, I don't think, 
I mean, the goal of this podcast won't be to decry the merits of video games, but I do think when we talk about whether or not we identify as gamers, that like the the stigma that's placed on games by kind of like the larger social consciousness, it's it's being broken up for sure, but it does still exist. And uh, and I, I'll just uh, argue against that study you shared. I've I've never felt more depressed for playing video games for longer than three hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you feel a little dragged by that survey. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like. I play at least three hours a day, and um, I need this, so let me live, (laughs) doctor. Um, Well, so since you're on that topic of the goal of this podcast, I'd love to hear you say more about what pixel therapy is to you and what you want to get out of this podcast. (sighs) Yeah, um... Pixel therapy, well, okay. I, I do think like this this concept of like whether or not I'm a gamer, like what it means to be a gamer, how I connect with game. Like I listen to to several video game podcasts. I consume a ton of games media. I love hearing people talk about video games and reading things written about video games. Like to the point where I don't feel like I can never get tired reading about that. And it's not just like critical takes, um, but like people who are just like really diving in. Mm-hmm. on like some random aspect of a video game and saying like, here's this whole meta theory of like what this could mean and what this says about our society, that this was even placed in this game. And and all that stuff is super interesting to me, but I've never had, you know, I'll just say like, you're one of the only friends that I've ever had that will actually talk about video games intensely. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a ton of other friends that are gamers. I don't have a lot of friends in general, That's same. But same. Games that are like friends who play video games regularly. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the coolest things that I'm hoping to get out of this podcast is just to meet more people who had an emotional experience with a video game and want to come yes. talk about it. Yeah. Uh, on and and the reason I think we're we're tying it to emotions and getting away from this idea of traditional critical discourse is like there's for one thing there's a ton of people out there already doing the traditional critical discourse and who are we to have like a better critical discourse opinion? But what we can have that I think is wholly unique is uh, the perspective that we brought to those games. And kind of as we were already saying earlier, that is so much a part of the video game experience. Like who you are in the, like who you are as a person and how your psyche knits into the game that you are playing. That's like what creates the video game. Mm -hmm. Like a video game just at its face, I don't even think is like a complete experience. It requires the player. Mm -hmm. Um, you interact with it. So getting to meet other people and especially people whose voices don't get elevated as much in this industry um, mm-hmm. and people who aren't like, they're not in the video game industry. They're not a- out there as gamers in like their traditional sense, but still talking to them about video games and learning about the video games that they love. I think it just helps us broaden that definition of gamer and helps more people yes. see themselves in it. Ah, oh, chills. You gave me chills. That was beautiful. <laughs> Uh, what, what, what do you want to get out of this podcast? What does this mean to you? Yeah. Um, I, what you said. (laughs) 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 And that's a wrap. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, so, wow. Let me just kind of sit with what you said for a minute, but, um, you know, for me, I think it's, it's staggering to me that, um, for a lot of the hate and vitriol is that how you pronounce that word um that you see coming out of like traditional online gaming quote-unquote gaming communities um like from people who who claim to be gamers and play very many video games um Mm -hmm. it's it's always sort of shocking to me how someone who plays a lot of games can be someone who is also closed-minded or someone who is hateful towards others because if anything I have found, you know, as a trans person, as a non-white person, as a queer person, as a weird, awkward person, socially inept person, like I found games to be the place where, um, you know, I've seen myself reflected, like I've seen um, my struggles reflected, um, the feelings of, of being an outsider, of being an other, of being outcast, of being singled out and demonized um, for reasons um that you can't quite understand. Like those are all building blocks of, of, of any video game protagonist and how they start out. And, um, you know, how do you win over an entire country? How do you, uh, change an entire 
community's mind about you? How do you, um, you know, overcome ov- unbelievable obstacles um, with the help of, of others and, and depending on yourself? Like, like, those are all things that I think that I can speak to just like being a trans person in America too. And like, I find power in my story by living the stories that I play in video games. Um, And I also feel like I'm able to see, um, you know, how much like I should appreciate myself and how much I I should celebrate myself. Cause like, you really feel the achievement, like you're there with that character, you're achieving stuff and, and game, sometimes games are really hard and like it takes time and effort and practice. And, um, you know, I think as someone who is a millennial and with the attention span of a tadpole, um, it's very easy for me to kind of like give up on something if I don't get it right the first time. Like I think this is one of my main struggles at work, like in my working life, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. Um, but a game like sometimes like, especially when you mentioned God of War earlier, like, and uh, I'm playing uh, God of War uh, 2018, and um, those, there's parts of the game where you have to hit with your axe these, um, these stones in often very quick succession in order mm-hmm. to unlock certain chests. Yeah. And there's just, you can't, some, like, unless you're, like, an esports, like, superstar athlete like you can't do it the first time you have to practice you have to do it several times and then when you do you're like oh my god yes like i did it (laughs) um and so yeah like i think that there's important lessons to be learned there in terms of um just perseverance and um uh you know different facets of humanity and um you know uh in the same way that vr can be really powerful as a tool for, um, you know, managing pain through distraction or um, triggering memories by immersing yourself in a real world uh, place or um, sort of, you know, giving, um, uh, giving, giving you a new way to tell stories. Like I think video games um, have always kind of sort of provided that as well. Like um, even, before VR was a thing, like I think people have used video games as a way to, um, you know, escape or uh, as a way to reclaim something lost or as a way to uh, discover something about themselves. So yeah, I just I think it's an awesome art form, and I and I want uh, I want to talk about it. That's it. That's our first ever session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you enjoyed this episode, we would definitely appreciate it if you could rate us and review us on your podcast application of choice. It does make a world of difference, uh, especially for an up and coming podcast like us. If you want to reach out to us, maybe you've got a great story about a game that changed you, a guest recommendation a question, or even just a comment for us, whatever it is, we'd definitely love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. And hey, who knows, if you write us something interesting, we may just have to read it on the show sometime. You can stay up to date on all things Pixel Therapy, like announcements of upcoming guests, clips of unreleased episodes, and whatever else tickles our fancies by following us on social media at pixeltherapypod. We also have a sexy website, pixeltherapypod.com. It's so sexy. <laughs> um, so yes, thank you, Jamie. Uh, I am here to talk about your side quest. Just imagine a spotlight falling upon me. Um, so every episode, we like to share what we call side quests, which are different um, ways that you can get involved either in your own community or on a national scale. This week, uh, we wanted to highlight an organization called Abundant Beginnings, and you can find them at AbundantBeginnings.org. That's A-B-U-N-D-A-N-T-B-E-G-I-N-N-I-N-G-S.org. And what they are is they are a collectively run, Black-led community education and empowerment initiative that is based in Oakland, um, and they are really cool. Personally, um, a friend of mine, Olivia, um, her little uh, nephew 
uh, goes to the Forest Freedom School, which is um, the uh, Abundant Beginnings Collective's uh, education initiative. And they are essentially working in the Bay Area to bring uh, radical curriculum that centers the needs of of those who are marginalized in the U.S. Um, It brings free education um, to Black and Brown students. Uh, It brings a gender-expansive and and queer-focused lens to these learners. Um, uh, It's inclusive of folks with different abilities, um, students holding trauma, and all of the intersections um, that Black folks, uh, you know, hold. Um, The long-term goal of Abundant Beginnings is to become a residential nonprofit. They want to buy land. They want to build sustainable uh, educational um, resources on this land. They want to invest in educators. Um, they want to take their programming to a national scale. Um, they are currently on the road to fundraising $1 million um, to make this dream possible. They've just hit phase one of fundraising at 150 k Um, which will allow them to continue their operations um, and provide that tuition-free schooling. You can help them reach their next goal of 300K, um, which will allow them to hire additional educators and bring their curriculum to that national scale. Um, Again, this is an organization that I think is incredible. Um, I think what they're doing in terms of um, you know, just destroying the hegemony that is mm. uh, built into this educational system and making it one that truly centers and uplifts in joy and power um, these black and brown young people. Uh, that I can't think of um, a better organization to put your money towards. So to donate, um, you can visit them online at abundantbeginnings.org. You can also donate at givebutter.com slash abundant beginnings and that's givebutter g-i-v-e-b-u-t-t-e-r dot com slash abundant beginnings um check them out follow them on instagram tell your friends um yeah thank you yeah definitely that's it's an awesome organization uh so please please go support them uh that is our show today Uh, So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. Uh, We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Therapy.